Never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. Napoleon Bonaparte. You want to fight? We'll give you a fight. Welcome to FightCast. Some of the men were singing Kimigayo, the national anthem. Others were chanting the gruesome naval lament, If I go to sea, I shall return a corpse awash. Thus, for the sake of the emperor, I shall not die peacefully at home. It was all typically Japanese. Johnny never came marching home. The martial songs left him rotting on some foreign field or dying hopelessly, as now, in a futile suicide charge. A half-naked officer with a white hachimaki around his head hysterically screamed Banzai and waved his sword in impotent defiance at the circling American aircraft, a symbol, somehow, of the whole futile mission. What were Admiral Toyota's words before they sailed? The fate of our empire truly rests upon this one action. Only the gods could help the empire now. That is a quote from... A Glorious Way to Die uh, by Russell Spur, the kamikaze mission of the battleship Yamato. This is our main source for our episode today, which, as you might have guessed, is about the most massive and heavily armed battleship ever conceived of by humankind, the battleship Yamato. Uh, I'm David. I'm here with Kirsten. Hey! Uh, So, we're here to kind of complete the second half of this doomed battleship series that we had... uh, set out on and by we i mean i told you this is what we're doing (laughs) and you're like okay i have to say it's a fascinating topic um i think battleships are so irrelevant to the type of warfare that i grew up seeing and that uh that we see now and uh so i know nothing about them yeah i it the symbols that these things were for their respective governments and for think about yourself as somebody imagine you're english right in you know 17th 18th 19th centuries leading up to the 20th century you've always known that the reason that you a tiny rainy island in the north atlantic uh an afterthought off the coast of the main european mainland why is it that this one tiny island can exert control over half the world? Mm. You know, Ships? sun, sun never exactly. Mm-hmm. Sun never set on the British Empire because they were the greatest naval power, bar none, for centuries. And if you're an Englishman, you got to take a certain pride in the fact that you're alive, or or at least your empire is alive and thriving because of machines. Machines that you and your people have become very good at building, you know? Uh, eventually, as, as I said in the last episode, you went from having ships of the line to steel-clad battleships to battleships with rotating turrets, and then you finally have the dreadnoughts, and now we're in World War II, and we have the super battleships. Bismarck, Iowa, and... What we're talking about mainly today, Yamato. Now, what makes them super battleships? Is what? it just their size? Is it their uh, it, it, fighting it, capacity? Um, if I didn't touch upon it, you know, enough in the last episode, ships are not measured by their weight. Huh. 
they're measured by their displacement of water. Mm-hmm. Because obviously you can't take a scale and put a fucking battleship on it. Wow. So in <laughs> yes, and you will see that battleship become very embarrassed very quickly. Uh, no, no, they have to measure it in the tonnage of water displaced. Okay. Um, so this tells you a little bit about. I mean, this tells you how much ship there is. It doesn't necessarily tell you how it's distributed. Right. Right. Um. Yamato, if you look at cross-sections of Yamato in comparison to, say, Bismarck, Yamato has a very interesting kind of um, cab-forward design, if that makes any sense. Okay. Um, kind of a lot of the weight and the turrets and the, um, and the main armored citadel is uh, up front. Uh, Bismarck's is in the center. It's more kind of an equilateral, uh, equal kind of draft shape to it. Uh, teardrop kind of shape is the word I was looking for. Um, but w- what made Yamato a super battleship is go back to World War One, where you had the only major battleship on Battleship Encounter, Jutland. Those guns, uh, sorry, those ships, the guns on those ships were firing. And by the way, quick naval anecdote, apparently the second you take a cannon and you put it on a ship, it's a gun. Oh. So... No, no, it, it, apparently, because people, military buffs, will get up your ass about this <laughs> if you use the wrong terminology. So we're talking about, in land, these would have been siege cannons that knock down giant forts and shit like that, right? But here they're guns. Now, uh, at, at Jutland in World War One, only about 20, 30 years before this time, you had ships firing at each other with 12, 13-inch guns, maybe. So Yamato, by comparison, had nine, as its main armament, nine 18.1-inch guns. This is, we're, we're talking diameter here. They're firing shells the weight of medium-sized pickup trucks <laughs> at the enemy. And those things explode, as we know. So Yamato has uh, a bit of a... It's a bit of a tragic story from the get-go. As we were talking about earlier, um, my big my big thing with battleships, uh, or at least these battleships, and what makes them tragic is really the fact that they were a little bit obsolete by the time they were even built. It takes a long time to build a battleship, mm-hmm. you know? And so by the time you conceive of the idea you want, finalize your design, build the motherfucker, and by the time that that motherfucker's ready to fight... A lot of time has passed, but a time in which your adversaries could have very possibly out-technologied you, at to some degree. This happened with the this happened with the Germans and the English uh, back in World War One. Uh, the Germans had better optics on their guns. The the British had better guns, but the Germans could aim theirs better. Um, so you have different technological advances uh, over each other in this way. Um, but it, from the get-go, and uh, going back to your question, what really makes this a super weapon a la the Death Star, like Bismarck was, is that it was grand on a scale nobody had ever seen before. Again, we're talking, this is the largest battleship ever made. That has to be a super weapon by any, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But again, tragic in the fact that they just couldn't really see coming the amount of air power we, we were able to bring to bear. So, um, little, uh, timeline on this ship. So, it was ordered in March of 1937. 
It okay. was uh, the keel was laid uh, on November fourth of that same year, nineteen thirty-seven. It was launched in August eighth, nineteen forty. So the hull was completed and everything there in nineteen forty, and it was finally ready, fitted, and ready to be commissioned into the navy at uh, the Japanese navy on December sixteenth, nineteen forty-one. Okay, so about four years, four and a half years. Yeah, exactly. How much happens during that time? What new weapons do you discover about during that time and go, oh, we need to change the design now because we have to incorporate against this weapon? Right, but once you've started it, you can't exactly say, well, we better scrap that significant <laughs> portion of our GDP boondoggle. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> And, I mean, once you commission a hull of that size, I mean, apparently they built a tent, a, some kind of screen over the dry dock to prevent it from being photographed by air. Um, and they incorporated all these measures. Like, for instance, um, a, according to this book, A Glorious Way to Die by Russell Spur, uh, available at your local library. <laughs> uh, according to this book, uh, the trains that passed along, along the coast uh, near the dock or, or, or near the harbor... Uh, you had to do. You had to pull the blinds on the seaward side of the train. Oh, interesting. Yeah, a fat lot of good it did because I mean the endeavor was so huge that it doesn't matter if you see the specifics. You know they're building something gigantic in right. there. You know, and um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, the, the screen wouldn't help at all later on in the war, um, but. Uh, in February 1942, after it's uh, completed its sea trials, it becomes the flagship of Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto's combined fleet. Uh, Yamamoto was, of course, the guy who orchestrated the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, very interesting character. Deserves its own episode. I'll just say that right now. But very they, interesting character. They named the ship after the dude? No, no, no. no. Uh, Yamamoto is his name. Yamato is actually named for the... Oh, Yamato. Uh, sorry, no, no, it's it's no, it's all good. It's it's an easy it's 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 it, it's an easy uh, mistake to make. Um, Yamato was named for, and this is one of the reasons that it was so huge in the Japanese psyche, mm -hmm. is because Yamato is the name of the dominant, I guess you could say, clan or ethnic group of Japan. Now. Oh, it, they're they're known as the tribe of Yamato, um, or again, that we're talking the main you know cultural de demographic of the Japanese. So that right there, you're identifying the entire ship with the country, with hmm. the empire. It, yeah. I'm just really glad that we didn't launch the ship white people. <laughs> I feel like that sends the wrong message. Well, we did launch a USS Iowa. <laughs> Thanks for that segue. I appreciate that. I I'll touch a little bit of a tidbit later on about Iowa. Maybe I'll make it a bonus part of this episode sure. or something. Anyway, um, so uh, it is made the flagship um, of Admiral Yamamoto's combined fleet in February of 1942. Uh, on June 4th, uh, 1942, it served as the flagship uh, at the Battle of Midway. So what happened after Pearl Harbor in the breaking it down into the most condensed terms possible is uh, we got real mad. Uh, the Japanese were kind of up shit creek from the beginning because their main target at Pearl Harbor was our carriers. They weren't there, mostly. They were back out on the United States mainland by the time... And it was a big blunder the Japanese made when they attacked. 
So by the time that the U.S. was able to counterattack across the Pacific, we had all our carriers ready to go, unharmed. We lost a lot of good battleships, such as the Arizona in uh, Pearl Harbor, which, again, deserves its own episode, but I'll just smooth over that. Um, we, we lost a lot of good battleships there, but their main target was our carriers because they knew, again, naval warfare had changed by this time. We knew that we had to have air dominance over our naval battlefields mm -hmm. if we were going to have any hope of uh, countering something like what would have totally dominated in the old world, which is these super weapon battleships. Um, yeah. You know, it's an interesting sort of what if, um, as a counter, what if our carriers did happen to be in Hawaii, uh, considering that air was so essential to the Pacific theater, um, I mean, I don't know, what if. I don't know if you could calculate the loss, you know, I, I, I don't think that because it was essential because not only the, the importance of a carrier task group as you as these fleets come to be known in the Pacific, the, the thing that made those super important was not just because you had attack aircraft on them. You had reconnaissance aircraft. Naval warfare is helped greatly if you both know where you the fuck are and where your enemy the fuck is. Battleship. Um, yes. Yes, exactly. It's, it is the game Battleship. Yeah. You saw this amazing documentary with Liam Neeson. <laughs> I did not see it. No, not I, I didn't either. <laughs> I didn't either. It looked so bad. Maybe we'll do a bonus episode at some point if I or run out of not. ideas. I don't think that's ever something that needs to be watched. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, um, oh, back to Midway. That's yes. right. So uh, we, we counterattack across the Pacific. Eventually, uh, the next major encounter that happens is at a battle called Midway. Midway is so-called because it's halfway between Hawaii and the Japanese mainland. Um, a wonderful bit of espionage happens. We break... Oh, sorry. We, as in the United States Navy, happens to break the codes of the Japanese. Um, they find out that they are planning a massive raid on a... Uh, they didn't. It was a code designate. They didn't know what it was. They figured out by breaking the codes that it was Midway. Um, now, what what was happening was that Yamamoto was hoping to lure the American fleet in and kill it in a decisive motion. Because we could read their codes, that kind of... Right. Anyway, we, we kicked major ass at Midway, and the Japanese Navy was... It was kind of the first major indication in the war that the Japanese were not up to the task of standing up to the United States armed forces during mm -hmm. World War II. Um, people seem to forget. I, I feel like mostly in the United States consciousness, we think of World War II's European theater as our war. Right. We, we, we like to... We forget Pacific theater a lot. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure that not a lot of people do, but I mean, we, we most we most often talk about our victory over the Nazis rather than our victory over the Imperial Japanese. Mm. It, plus, it, Japan's kind of awesome now; they're kind of our friend now, and everything. So, it kind of, that's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so, but. Really, the the war against the Nazis was won by the Soviet Union. You could call the entire European ah. World War II theaters as the Soviet Union versus the Nazi Empire and a bunch of little side action. You could 
potentially make the argument of calling it that. Yeah. But you can undoubtedly say that the United States' involvement in World War II, our, our war was the Pacific War. Okay. Um, we put all of our resources into get. I mean, the, we, the, the, the Japanese attacked first. I mean, this... Anyway. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting way into the weeds. Yeah. I'm getting way into the weeds. But, so, Midway was a de- decisive defeat for the Imperial Japanese Navy. Um, which Yamamoto directed from the bridge of Yamato. I have to make sure I get those terms straight in my own head. It's all written out in what I'm reading. They're like interchangeable, and it's like reading a tongue twister. I gotta remember, one has three syllables, one has four syllables. Um, So, in August 1942, after the Battle of Midway, uh, the defensive perimeter around the Japanese islands is kind of shrinking already at this Uh point. The U.S. has its eye on the Philippines, retaking the Philippines, uh, in you know, securing uh, help from Australia, that kind of thing. Uh, so in August of 1942, Yamato is returning to Truk Harbor, and I'm not even making that up. There is a harbor. There was a harbor called Truk. Uh, um, she's going to spend the entirety of the Guadalcanal campaign there. Now, the Guadalcanal, uh, it, it was our first kind of major uh, infantry fighting in the Pacific Theater. Um, There's a very famous series on HBO right now called The Pacific. You can watch that. That's all about Guadalcanal campaign. I believe also the film The Thin Red Line. Um, But during this entire time, you might wonder... Excellent, excellent things to watch, by the way. Absolutely. Everyone talks about Band of Brothers. No one talks about the Pacific. You guys need to start talking about the Pacific. Anyways, continue. The Punisher's in it. That's right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) John Bernthal, great actor. Uh, So... um, you might wonder where the Japanese super weapon battleships are. Well, it's unfortunately undergoing refits and uh, has to spend the entirety of the Guadalcanal campaign in harbor because they lacked ammunition for its main guns and it didn't have enough fuel. Mm. We, we tend to forget that one of the reasons the entire war in the Pacific started was because Japan was expanding into the Philippines, China, Indochina, those places, in search of more resources, because Japan's small. Right. So they needed gas. They needed gas, they needed rubber, they needed steel, they needed those main things. So once uh, the defensive perimeter uh, in the Pacific is shrinking following Midway, they're starting to use up more of their fuel. Like, the... the the shortage of supply is going to be something that really is, I guess, the death knell for the Japanese in this war. Mm. Because their entire reason for conquering as much territory as they did was, was for, a sense... Right, resources. And once we take that back from them, they you can't sustain this war machine any longer. The empire becomes the... We've all played yeah. civilization. We, we know what it's like. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so... Uh, uh, it, it can't help out at all during that time. So uh, in December, we're, we're skipping forward now. Uh, uh, during a lot of this time, uh, she's doing missions like escorts and uh, undergoes a little bit more sea trials and undergoes more refits and rearms. And uh, again, stays out of all the parts of the war where Yamato might have made any potential difference, again, thankfully for us, because people just couldn't seem to stop tinkering with the thing. Like, you want to, I guess, also hoard this amazing asset, but they uh, kept working on it. Um, On an escort mission on December, on Christmas Day, 1943, 
uh, was hit by torpedoes from the USS submarine uh, from the U.S. submarine USS Skate while on a transport mission. Uh, it took them about six months to patch up that damage. Um, skipping ahead uh, to June 19th, 1944, the Battle of the Philippine Sea. Um, this was... The Battle of the Philippine Sea was not so much a battleship encounter as it was an aircraft carrier encounter. Okay. Um, it was what wiped out Japan's air power for pretty much the rest of the war. Um, not just air, air power, but you... You tend to forget that manpower and training is such a huge part of what makes a fighting force effective. I mean, we forget it in terms of these grand machines and everything, but ultimately, Japan couldn't sustain their effort in the Pacific or the, or in the war at all because they ran out of good pilots. They ran out of good pilots early, and one of the things that was the main killer of those pilots was the Battle of the Philippine Sea. Uh, it was known as the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot by the <laughs> by the uh, U.S. Navy pilots during this time. Uh, a little, little embarrassing when your side of the battle is called a turkey shoot. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, the only significant contribution that it made during the Battle of the Philippine Sea, well, it was on it was on station, but it never saw combat. Okay. Um, now it, the the only time it fired was on mistakenly identifying returning Japanese aircraft for American aircraft. <laughs> Again, it's just, it's embarrassing. Ah, oh, man. Anyway, that somebody happened, made a, I mean, but that happened in the Bismarck story as well. And so yeah, that's like, true, that's true. Yeah, we, yeah. Friendly fire is just part of the, part of the game. There's an old saying, I think, friendly fire isn't. <laughs> but, um... Anyway, skipping forward now, I, again, it's egregious for me to kind of skip forward to, to this, cause, but, but I really need to concentrate only on the main encounters that Yamato took part in. Uh, the next one was the only time that Yamato's main weapons ever got to fire on American surface vessels. The only time that this ship was ever used as it was intended to be used was in one battle, and that battle, fittingly enough, was the largest naval encounter of all time, the Battle of Leyte Gulf. Huh. Uh, Leyte Gulf takes a little bit of explaining. Okay. So, bear with me. What Leyte Gulf actually was, was four separate, smaller battles all rolled into one. Um, it was, uh, first, the Battle of the Cebuian Sea. Uh, this is all taking place around the, uh, northeastern area of the Philippines, by the way. Okay. Um, uh, the, so it was first the Battle of the Cebuian Sea... Uh, the Battle of Surigao Strait, the Battle of Cape Engano, and the Battle of Samar, as well as other actions. Uh, I can't quite figure out why there's a difference between Battle of and Battle Off, but I'm sure a naval expert could possibly comment and educate me on that. Um, so this is also the first battle in which organized kamikaze attacks were seen. Um, in response to the American invasion of the Philippines, uh, this effort, which was, uh, the U.S. was landing troops on the Philippines, Marines, in order to retake the Philippines, and all those main air bases which had been maintained during that time. Uh, this would have been a gigantic blow to the Japanese, not just because, again, the Philippines are rich in resources, but it's strategically placed. So, once Americans started landing troops on the shore, uh, the Japanese Navy rushed in and said, this is the only time in which we're going to really try and push them off these possessions once and for all. So they basically grabbed every single 
surface vessel of significance, everything that they could find, they threw at the Americans in these four battles uh, that made up this one battle. It was known as Operation Shogo. Um, it called for a number of Japanese groups to converge on the island of Leyte, where American troops were landing. In the initial stages of the battle, Yamato engaged enemy surface targets for the only time in her careers, hitting several American ships. Uh, Good for her. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, I didn't find a record as to uh, how many were sunk by Yamato specifically, but um, I can only imagine how hard it is to keep track of that kind of thing. Um, uh, after Yamato confirmed primary battery hits on the escort carrier USS Gambler Bay, uh, a spread of torpedoes heading for Yamato was spotted. The battleship was forced to steer away from the fighting to avoid them and was unable to rejoin the battle. Uh, th this is this puzzled me at first when I read this, but then I realized that even if we're talking about an archipelago like the Philippines, you're talking about not always the best maneuvering space mm. for large amounts of ship. Again, oh, biggest right. biggest naval encounter in history. So I can only imagine that, like, oh, shit, we need to swerve to avoid these torpedoes. Oh, wait, unless we take any other course, we're going to maybe plow into our own ships or something, you know? So I can – I, I, I got to give some leeway to that one as far as that goes because um, I wasn't there, <laughs> you know? Uh, so Leyte Gulf was really the beginning of the end of the Japanese Navy. Um, after this, uh, really the – island hopping campaign accelerated across the Pacific. It was aided by uh, sustained bombing campaigns. Uh, the next big target was Okinawa. Now, Okinawa was historically bad fighting. You know, uh, Iwo Jima was a part of the fighting to take Okinawa. Um, it, we're, we're, we're talking like, I mean, horrific hand-to-hand -hand combat on the ground. Um, as the, as the final step before their planned invasion of the Japanese mainland, Allied forces invaded Okinawa on April 1st. The Imperial Japanese Navy's response was to organize a mission codenamed Operation Tengo that would, see, that would see the commitment of much of Japan's remaining surface strength. Uh, Yamato and nine escorts, uh, the cruiser Yahagi and eight other destroyers that would sail to Okinawa and, with the kamikaze, already they're forming suicide pilots as part of their main battle strategy. So that was a real, I kind of assumed that that yeah. was half legend, half was that a real yeah, phenomenon? It, it was. Now, now the, the term kamikaze deserves a little bit of explaining as well. Now, kamikaze did not mean suicide attacker or suicide bomber. No, it was the divine wind. The divine wind, yeah, because of the giant uh, um, tsunamis and um, um, typhoon is the word I'm looking for. Mm -hmm that sank the Mongol fleet of Kublai Khan as they were trying to invade Japan. So they invoked this idea of a divine wind from the kami as coming to sweep across the Pacific and drive away the invaders, a la the Americans. Huh. So it was with this, and that was why they called themselves the kamikaze, because they figured that by their sacrifice uh, of themselves against these ships, uh, that they would eventually save their homeland and it's mm -hmm. just it's 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 the damnedest thing because you flip you flip the script a little bit you know if we're talking about the the, the spartans at thermopylae or something we're talking about the same thing we're talking about you know shit my homeland's in trouble 
right. you know, I'm invoking the gods to save my homeland. And these, this is the level of indoctrination, of course, that you have. Interesting. Um, so, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to uh, <laughs> uh, go too terribly in the kamikaze, but uh, it was at Leyte Gulf that you first saw organized attacks of kamikaze. Um, but... Uh, by the time Okinawa happened, uh, it was getting to be the part where they were relying on kamikaze attacks. At this point, they're they're they're, which was which which sucked because, as as beautiful and poetic as a wave you can frame, you know, uh, crashing your plane loaded with bombs into enemy ships in a glorious uh, act of self sacrifice, suicide attack. Um, really, what what it was about was because the pilots just weren't very good. Hmm. There's, they knew that their pilots couldn't stand up against the experienced, you know, U.S. Navy Air Force, which by this point had been wreaking havoc across the Pacific for a couple of years. You know, you, uh, uh, the United States and Great Britain had a core of experienced uh, fighter pilots um, and bomber pilots. You know, you had people who really knew what they're doing. Japan, by this point, uh, after Leyte Gulf, after Philippine Sea, this talent's gone. This know-how is gone, and they're, they have you know, people who know how to fly planes. They know how to you know, take off and, I don't know, theoretically land. But even then, you don't even need that, I guess, right? It, it, it's a really sad fact of it, but it's very possible that this you know, beautiful Bushido um, stuff is just really nothing but pure naked op opportunism on behalf of the government mm -hmm. because they just knew that oh we just need somebody who can basically fly a plane and arm some bombs and that's it put pump them full of nationalism and then you know <laughs> yeah. and which which again this strategy say what you will about it people were scared of these kamikaze they posed a serious threat huh. to American ships um, many ships were sunk many Americans died from kamikaze attacks and late in the war this is what um yeah th this is what people began to be afraid of so um it, yamato and its nine escorts this is back to okinawa now N yamato and nine escorts would sail to okinawa and in concert with kamikaze and okinawa-based army units attack the allied forces assembled on, on and around okinawa yamato would then be beached to act as an unsinkable gun emplacement and continue to fight until destroyed so, this is pure fantasy at this point. You have a plan to beach your ship like a gigantic armored and armed whale and basically shoot until your ammo runs out in order to drive away the American ships. I, I don't know how they possibly thought that could work. I could think of off the top of my head about ten ways that that could go wrong, that that could not work. <laughs> That like oh you know did you think about it the ship falls over or something you can't fire its guns did you um, think about that like so much is uh, the, rather than have a defeatist attitude or have any kind of realistic attitude about their chances here they're coming up with well to be fair they didn't have much as far as options yeah you know and no, the Americans yeah. were coming ever closer and ever closer. And so they're playing every card. It's that they very can easy for us on. to look back and make fun of a lot of these decisions that were made, but yeah. when in reality, you know, you don't know. Uh, they don't have the knowledge that we have now. 
they don't even have the knowledge of where the American troops were stationed that we have now. Like they, there's so much in the the, the fog of war that um, I think it's easy just to forget. And I know that we've touched on this before, but it's easy to forget how your decisions can go from rational to emotional very fast, oh, simply yeah. out of having no knowledge and having to take guesses. And sometimes mm-hmm. those guesses lead to losing so much money. Oh, I, Jesus, sh- these ships are expensive. I, uh, I, I, I can only imagine if, like, just the money from Yamato alone, the money spent both building and maintaining Yamato, if that money was rather spent, uh, or those resources spent rather just on better weapons, research, development, come up with better infantry rifles, for Christ's sakes, like, I mean, something, anything. I mean, serious misallocation of resources. Yeah. Anyway, lest I speak ill about the Japanese in World War II. Um, anyway, uh, in preparation for the mission, Yamato had taken on a full stock of ammunition on March 29th. According to the Japanese plan, the ships were supposed to take aboard only enough fuel for a one-way voyage to Okinawa. But enough, uh, but additional fuel amounting to... 60% of capacity was issued on the authority of local base commanders. Uh, so you have these ships taking on as both a symbolic gesture and a real world because they just didn't have the fuel to spare, taking on only enough fuel to make a one-way voyage to mm. beach themselves on the shores of Okinawa. And uh, it, it, imagine being a sailor on this ship. Imagine being the fact that nobody's hiding the fact from you that this is a suicide mission. Mm-hmm. Nobody is making any kind of plans about living but to fight another day or anything like that. Then it's kind of that same philosophy behind the kamikaze that, yeah. hey, if you guys are beached and end up going through the suicide mission, if you can take out a couple U.S. carriers, then would that not be worth it? <sighs> of course, that's not what ended up happening, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. hindsight. I- it's always, always 2020 for sure. Um, it was designated the Surface uh, Special Attack Force. Now, a quick side note. In, in A Glorious Way to Die, Russell Spur notes that the Japanese had this euphemism for their um, suicidal last-ditch revenge weapon programs. You know, like the Germany had their V-series rockets. Um, and Japan had, instead, they just called them anything that was dubbed special you knew it was like, oh, this is a last-ditch suicide weapon to try and stave off the inevitable. Ooh, like, it carried the, the term special toko, I believe, is the Japanese term was used. Um, it, it's, it's, it's such a weird and uniquely Japanese euphemism. It's got such an air of dread about it. Um, so, on April 7th, uh, Yamato's crew were ordered to general quarters, ready for anti-aircraft action on the dawn of April 7th. The first Allied aircraft made contact with the Surface Special Attack Force at 823. Um, so what had happened was that, of course, we're reading their naval trans, uh, transmissions. Uh, we're, we're judging basically where they're going to come at us, if they're going to come at us with anything. We know Yamato's out there. Um, it's Citrusship Musashi, I believe, was already sunk at this point. Um, so basically, what's going to happen to Yamato now is a souped-up and on-steroids version of what happened to Bismarck. The uh, 
the ship never made it to Okinawa, never made it to its intended destination to serve as this unsinkable gun platform. Uh, instead, the uh, American uh, aircraft spotted it rather easily and uh, sent in three whole waves of bombers to uh, uh, to take this. Th- but, uh, bombers and fighter bombers, uh, F-6F Hellcats. Uh, great, great aircraft. Love those. Anyway. So, uh, Yamato's crew were at general quarters on the 7th. Uh, Yamato fired common Type 3 or Beehive shells at the Allied seaplanes. They couldn't master the art of the VT fuse, which is, at Philippine Sea, what won us that battle was a special fuse called a VT fuse. It sent out little radio signals so that it's uh, detonated by proximity. You didn't have to hit any enemy aircraft directly anymore. You just had to sort of hit near them. And um, the shells would explode, obviously, and the shrapnel would down the aircraft. Hmm. The Japanese attempt to copy this was known as a beehive shell. And what it was was a timed shell that basically fired out, um, scattered its projectile one second after leaving the barrel. They tried to do it by time as opposed to... um, Unfortunately, it was woefully inaccurate, and they didn't have a... They were woefully bad at scoring hits on American aircraft for the most part. Um, from the first attack at 12.37 to the final explosion at uh, 14.23 military time, Yamato was hit by at least 11 torpedoes and 6 bombs. There may have been 2 more torpedo and bomb hits, but this is not confirmed. They wrecked this thing. Uh, they, they, they sent it straight to the bottom as soon as possible. I mean, it, it, it's kind of... It was time, I guess, you know? I mean, thankfully, it got to have a longer service history than Bismarck did. I mean, even if a lot of that time was spent shuttling troops and equipment rather than spent fighting. Well, it was still time spent doing something. Yeah, I suppose so. But again, it's the tragedy of the fact that, like, you build this amazing Corvette and you never take it out on the racetrack. You you build this weapon that has a a key... One very important, very huge intended purpose. It rarely, if at all, gets to serve that intended purpose at all. I mean, I guess you could say that it put up a good showing at Leyte Gulf, but even then, like, we had thoroughly demonstrated by this point that it's the aircraft that's going to win naval battles from now on, or at least during this point. Uh, it's not battleships anymore, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and it's also sad because we're never going to see the like of these weapons again. Um, I, I mentioned the USS Iowa-class battleship. Um, the, the Iowa is the largest battleship that the United States has ever produced. And it, ca- and it clocked in at around uh, 57,000 tons displacement. Yamato displaced 71,000. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of water. Uh, <laughs> Yes. That's a lot of shit. <laughs> I'm sure it pushed up the Japanese shoreline just a little bit. But I, I, it, it just goes to show then, you know, you, you spend X amount, you, you spend a, a literal percentage point of that on a plane with a bomb, a couple of them, mm-hmm. down goes your expensive battleship. Well, and funny enough, what ended the war in that Pacific theater was air. Yeah. Um, you know, had had... Had our carriers been destroyed, would we have had carriers built quickly enough to have been able to use the atomic bomb? Yeah. You know, I... 
one can only speculate. It's just that you had to have thought that as the 40s are developing, again, this ship was conceived and ordered in 1937. Right. By the time the 40s roll around, are people regretting their decision now? But again, like you said at the, at the beginning of the episode, you, you can't just say no once a certain amount of money has been spent. It's at a certain point, military projects, as we've all seen with right. the military budget being what it is, have a way of snowballing. Once you start them, you have a very hard time stopping them. Look at Howard Hughes and his Spruce Goose. He's, he built that thing just to fucking p- p- prove a point. But, you know, how much money was spent on these s- super heroic symbols mm-hmm. of their nation, you know? Uh, at the very least, we never called, you know, uh, <laughs> at least we never called, you know, a, a gigantic aircraft carrier. At least we never called it, you know, the uh, um, the the USS United States or something, you know, or the USS Uncle Sam. Unless there was a USS Uncle Sam, I doubt there was. Probably not. You know, <laughs> USS Steve Rogers. But, <laughs> but 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 that's the thing. Like we were smart enough to at least, you know, not wrap too much of our national image in these battleships. We saw them as tools to be used and won. I mean, the, the the crews that served upon American battleships can take a great amount of pride in their ships, obviously. But, I mean, I don't know if it was the fanatical level that it was perhaps on Yamato. You know, we're, maybe we're talking apples and oranges when we're comparing ideologies. Um, but it, it, it sure, I think, taught human beings a lesson about the fact that when you wrap so much of your identity up in this thing that you think is going to save you, this battleship, you know, in this case, that this super weapon that's going to save your civilization, mm-hmm. and that goes down, like, it's a high-risk, high-reward kind of gamble. Yeah. <laughs> and, and unfortunately for both of these battleships, they didn't really get much of a high reward. And, you know, and, and that's a good thing. We have to remind ourselves that that is a good thing, you know. I mean, we can always talk about what would have been, but ultimately... It is a good thing that these people lost the war. Let's remind ourselves about that one. Yeah, but their ships were cool. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Um, and ships and we and will, uniforms going for them. And as we say to the members of the Night's Watch, as we burn them upon the ceremonial pyre, we shall never see their like again. Uh, <laughs> because nowadays, I mean, fast forward to naval combat nowadays, while the USS Iowa and uh, uh, ships of its class are still afloat, and you can see them at uh, Los Angeles in the case of USS Iowa, um, naval warfare nowadays is one on, what is it, like UAVs, missiles, mm-hmm. you know? What can a battleship do that a cruise missile launching destroyer can't do better and more precisely? If you put, if you pit one modern destroyer with cruise missiles and all that kind of stuff and modern sensing technology that kind of thing up against Yamato I don't think Yamato stands a chance well but what if it now I know this doesn't fit the theme of the podcast but what if it wasn't necessarily a military ship you think uh, someone could build a ship of that size that sturdiness and it be a I don't know a passenger ship or a brand new country that someone built in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> I think it we shouldn't say that we'll never see their like again. We will happily probably never see their like used as a weapon. Yeah. Certainly. And until 
we move into space travel and the Death Star shows up. Yes. Yeah, there's that. Or then we see the re- for real space battleship Yamato, <laughs> which I I considered watching part of that anime for this uh, for the research of this episode, Probably but I just not historically could accurate. not could not bring myself Probably. to justify it. As far as visiting the ships, I do have to say, um, not very long ago, I want to say sometime last year, they sent a probe down uh, to map out the Yamato because they oh. they know where the wreck is. Um, they found it and. Uh, they, I guess, mapped it out so that you can go to this museum in Japan and actually kind of have a little, like, walkthrough virtual mm. thing of the Yamato, uh, which I think is just neat. I love shipwrecks. I, I think to to they're wonderful. fascinating. Yeah. I, oh. Listeners, expect a bonus video episode if we can ever get to Japan and actually do that. That just gives us one more reason why we need to go, obviously. <laughs> There's so many reasons. Yeah, We're so, such nerds. <laughs> so many, so many. So yeah, that, that, that wraps up A Tale of Two Ships, uh, as we have called this series. Um, any final thoughts? I mean, super weapons are not a thing that we... I mean, in, in the atomic age, I mean, what's a battleship? <laughs> right. You know? So, uh... Yeah, I, I think, um... I think it's fascinating sea warfare just because it is so very much a thing of the past. Um, and, you know, you even look at the British Empire now, like, even Scotland doesn't want to stay with them. Like, <laughs> yeah. Now that they've lost the naval dominance. Um, however, because trade is such an important thing, uh, I think that it's good to remember that while grand naval battles will likely never be fought, uh, these types of ships are still in use because uh, piracy and attacks on uh, trade channels is still a real thing. That's true, that's true. And no matter how sophisticated air power, I think, has become in the modern age, as we've seen, we have we have X-Wing fighters now, basically. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Well, it's X-Wing un- fighters were based on World War II fighter pilots, and a lot of those... Uh, videos of them fighting in the original trilogy yeah. were taken from as close to shot-for-shot shot remakes as George Lucas could make it as old, like, World War II black-and-white films. That explains a lot, yep. you know? I mean, see, seeing as seeing as Bismarck was a, an inspiration for the Death Star and everything, and the a, attack run on that with, like, you know, plucky little biplanes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. That, that's that's crazy. Um, anyway, so we we are going to be coming. We are going to be coming at you with some uh, more episodes in uh, at a more regular interval. Uh, thank you very much for bearing with us uh, through any delays that we've had recently. Moving socks. Yeah, kind of <laughs> does, but whatever. Anyway, uh, we're going to be hitting on Iron Fist for our next episode, and oh boy, we got some notes to take. Uh, we were we were not happy, and uh, if you are, we will fight you. Uh, and ne- uh, in the next episode, because we are covering Iron Fist, we will no longer be fight cast. We'll be slappy hand cast. S- slappy hand bad dialogue cast. Ugh. Slappy hand bad dialogue. Those fucking curls cast. All right, let's save it for the. <sighs> let's save it for the outrage in two weeks. Fucking night of the flowers ruining my goddamn Marvel's movie. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Now go forth and conquer.